Welcome back to another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast. In today's episode, we discuss some totally unsubstantiated claims about the coronavirus, also known as COVID-19, followed by some very impressive feats of strength. After that, I share a research review about how the timing of your meals may alter the metabolic response to feeding. Then Greg shares a research roundup about energy expenditure during times of vigorous mental effort, antagonist stretching for strength and power, and using heart rate variability to gauge your recovery from lifting. After that, we answer a few listener questions, we share a very tentative recommendation for our On The Rise segment, and we share a very confident recommendation for our On The Rise segment. To play us out, Greg discusses some of his favorite sources of fun, informative educational content that is not fitness related, and then I one-up him by sharing the only source of information a person would ever need. As always, thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast. This is your one and only host, Eric Trexler, but one person can't do everything alone. So for today's episode, I brought in a special temporary guest co-host. His name is Greg Knuckles. Greg, thank you for joining me. Hey, uh, thanks for having me. I uh, I really appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. Um, so Greg, before we get into everything else this episode, we had uh, a program go available, become available within the last week or so. Yeah, we did. So uh, in 2015, I put out a program called Average to Savage. Uh, And since, I don't know, roughly 2017, uh, I've I've been saying an update was going to come out, um, but it was always like kind of a low priority. Uh, Beta went out last year around this time, uh, and I was planning on having the actual final version done by like June 2019. Anyway, continued to not be a priority. People was people were wondering, is it real? Is it a myth? Uh, it finally came out. It dropped, uh, oh, maybe like seven days ago at this point, give or take. Um, and the, the response has been great. Um, people have been using it. People have been, uh, have been getting strong. We mentioned the weight room program party uh, last episode, I believe, or two episodes ago, um, that got off to a smashing start. Uh, so yeah, yeah, things are good. Yeah. And the the program, as I understand, uh, you know, I've looked over it and messed with it a little bit, extremely flexible program. So we've gotten a lot of questions about, can you use it for hypertrophy? Can you use it with this training frequency, that training frequency? It's very, very flexible, highly adjustable, um, and also the pricing was flexible. So you want to talk a little bit about the, the pricing model? Because some people haven't gotten it yet, haven't gotten on board with the uh, the program party, but can still get the program. Yeah, yeah. So, um, <laughs> I mean, basically what I did is I built a program builder tool and then made a program on top of it. Um, so you can, you, you can modify and change literally the whole thing super easily. Not that I would recommend you do so because the program is great as is. Um, we launched it with pay what you want pricing or like pay what you think is fair pricing um, with a minimum of $5. The reason we did that is that like, I don't know. I'm not that old. I remember what it was be what it was like to be in college and have no money and want to buy fitness products and be able to afford literally none of them. Um, so yeah, you know, I, I wanted it to be something that was 
accessible for anyone. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, that's kind of, kind of the reasoning behind that, I guess. Yeah. And I also remember being a college student because I did that between the age of 18 to about a year ago. So (laughs) I can go all the way back in my memory archive and, and dig that up. Um, now, if you're listening, you're thinking, oh, cool, I'm going to try that. Go ahead and put in exactly $5 because even with the flexible pricing, this has generated a disgusting amount of wealth for Greg and he just keeps flexing it. It Right now, it's three in the afternoon. The entire day, he's just been taking selfies on his yacht. He went full-blown fitness life coach mode. Well, you know, let's not, uh, let's not blow this out of proportion uh, I really had my eye on a nice, you know, I would say perfectly reasonable 65 foot yacht. Uh, the launch went well, but not that well. I had to settle for, uh, quite frankly, an embarrassing 62 foot yacht. But, uh, you know, desperate times call for desperate measures. It's it's going to have to do. Yeah, I just want all the listeners to know when his Instagram gets flooded soon with a bunch of shirtless on the laptop selfies from his yacht understand that yacht is hitched uh in a a driveway in raleigh he's not on the ocean that's all just how they frame the images nowhere near as cool as he's trying to make it seem on the topic of obscene wealth a huge update for the podcast longtime listeners know we were thinking about pivoting this and making it a purely political podcast Greg was really big on making it a Klobuchar uh, podcast. I was hoping to make it more of a Bloomberg kind of deal. Um, unfortunately, both those plans are out the window. They are both out of the Democratic primary. And that's going to have a huge impact on the podcast trajectory. So we had pre-recorded, I would say, close to 200 hours of content, really digging deep into the Bloomberg and the Klobuchar universes. And that's all a waste. I mean, we can't really do anything with it anymore. So um, for the foreseeable future, it's going to continue to be mostly based on fitness and the intersection of of fitness and science, uh, unfortunately. (laughs) I mean, it it was a waste from the moment that you uh, mispronounced Klobuchar's name. It wouldn't be right if I started pronouncing names correctly. That's not how the podcast works. I mean... I just want to make it clear to the listeners that we did, in fact, record hundreds of hours of Klobuchar and Bloomberg related content, uh, even if every indication might suggest that that never happened. Correct. Well, first of all, if we said we did it, we did it. And you can take that to the bank. So there's that sorted out. But frankly, I don't know why we even bothered with the hundred or so hours of Klobuchar content, because frankly... I know this is an unpopular opinion. I know it's not politically correct, but I'm just going to say it. I don't trust people that aren't billionaires. I think not being a billionaire, unfortunately, is a very ugly character flaw. It should have been Bloomberg the whole time. Unfortunately, the American people voted incorrectly, and now we are where we are. So that's hundreds of hours of really, really good content that is a complete waste that will never see the light of day, and we have to keep doing all the fitness stuff. Now, we are going to get to feats of strength, but before that, we have one additional thing to talk about. This is crazy. So um, let's start at the beginning here. Uh, You know, coronavirus, COVID-19, all over the news. They canceled the Arnold Arnold Classic Expo. Kind, Kind of. Did they uncancel the expo? So the expo is still canceled, but it was it was in flux for like two or three days regarding whether only athletes would be allowed in to compete, 
or whether spectators were going to be able to come. And like at one point it was some sort of like ridiculous plan where spectators would be able to come for Friday and Saturday, but nothing else. Um, so I remember like for the bodybuilding show, they weren't going to be able to attend prejudging, but they were going to be able to attend the finals. Uh, people were up in arms about that. I honestly have no idea what the state of that is currently. And by the time you're listening to this, you can go back and read what the state of it was. Uh, but long story short, it's a big mess. Absolutely. But yeah, so so the, the virus and everything associated with it, you know, has kind of been on the forefront of the fitness world with all the comings and goings with the Arnold Classic. And uh, I saw an article. Do you know how to pronounce Beth's last name? I assume it's Squarecki. Yeah. So, so she wrote an, an article. I honestly didn't believe it. But apparently people are pushing the keto diet to prevent getting the coronavirus and like in like a really forceful way like oh it's as simple as this um so the article that we needed but didn't want to need (laughs) is out there and i'll link it in the show notes but if you follow various fitness accounts and they're saying hey looks like if you just go keto you definitely won't get this virus going around uh, believe it or not that's unsubstantiated uh there's there's no evidence to suggest that what what is the mechanism by which they're proposing that that would be the case? My understanding from dedicating 30 seconds of my life uh, to looking at it, it sounds like they're trying to, I, I guess there was a study about ketosis and the likelihood of contracting influenza with a very particular experimental model. And they borrowed that in and said, I'm sure that's going to apply to to COVID-19. And, and that's kind of where it started, I believe. Um, but you know, believe it or not, the claims are not quite as nuanced as that. Uh, it's it's pretty much just like, listen, I'm sure if you're on keto, you won't get it. So uh, if you've been hearing that going around and you're thinking, wow, maybe that should be what I do. Um, th- there's just no evidence to substantiate that. Uh, I did get uh, another fitness related intersection here. I did get a question about creatine that I think is a fair question. Um, in the creatine manual that we wrote uh, for Stronger by Science a billion years ago, uh, strongerbyscience.com slash creatine, I guess it was last year at some point, um, there is some evidence suggesting that, it, very mechanistic evidence, that creatine could potentially uh, I- impact immune function. Um, but in that article, I do mention that we do have at least one long-term study with creatine supplementation showing uh, directly looking at how frequently people got sick during the duration of that uh, intervention. And that mechanistic idea doesn't really appear to pan out when it comes to the longer trials with uh, with creatine supplementation. So um, it, it's a fair question to ask, you know, would it make sense to cease creatine use in order to kind of facilitate immune function? I don't think the evidence is strong enough to justify that, but but it, it's certainly a fair question. So um, if, if you've been kicking around ideas about from a fitness perspective, what can I do to kind of keep myself from getting, you know, it's flu season. This comes around every year. But if you have concerns about flu, coronavirus, COVID-19 stuff, there's really no quick fitness related fix as it pertains to supplementation or diet. Um you know, we certainly are in no position whatsoever to give advice on this, but we are on in, in a position that we can at least parrot what actual informed people are, are telling the public about reducing your risk of just getting sick during the season. Um, 
pretty simple stuff. Wash your hands, stay away from sick people, avoid touching your face uh, as much as you can, cover your mouth and nose when you sneeze. Um, and then my little editorial addition there just to kind of do the normal things that generally keep you healthy. So obviously, if you have glaring nutrient deficiencies or you're completely malnourished, that's not going to be great for maintaining, you know, good immune function. Um, Avoiding excessive stress is always a good idea. Um, You know, there are some of those studies showing that in acute bouts of really extreme exercise stressors, we do see uh, some modulation of the immune system. So um, that's something to keep in mind, I think, Um, you know, maybe not doing like an absolutely insane level of overreaching for several weeks on end here. It's probably not a great idea for your immune immune system in general. Um, Maintaining physical activity generally is a good thing, though, as is sleeping well. So there's no evidence to support any kind of one weird trick that, that's going to help you stay uh, healthy throughout the flu season and with this additional virus going around, but doing the things that typically are are in line with supporting good immune function, those are, are kind of the best we can do at this point, it would appear. Well, and, and also take uh, colloidal silver. Right. And, and probably ketone supplements as well, I would think. Correct. Yeah. That wasn't, that wasn't serious, by the way. Those are the cornerstones of any balanced diet. (laughs) Exactly. All right, Greg, let's get to the good stuff. Uh, Feats of strength. Yeah. So uh, first off, we have, unfortunately, another in memoriam segment uh, to to kick things off. So uh, Siamand Raman, who was a two-time gold medalist in the Paralympic bench press, um, passed away recently. He was only 31 years old. Um, I heard people saying that it was a heart attack, but I couldn't find that like verified from from a credible source. Um, but anyway, gone way too early. Uh, he was, I, I mean, he was Iranian. I don't know anyone who knew him personally, but he was an insanely impressive lifter. Um his best bench in competition was 310 kilos or 683 pounds. And one thing to note about uh, Paralympic bench press competitions is judging is just ridiculously strict. Um, and so there was a, there was training footage of him going around uh, hitting 320 or 705, almost like it was in a, almost as if it was an empty bar. So incredibly strong. Um, was, was probably going to go 700 plus at, at the Olympics this year, the, the Paralympics run in conjunction with the Olympics. Um, but yeah, passed away recently, way too early. Um, and that is a huge loss for the sport. Um, pivoting to hopefully less depressing stuff. Uh, Anthony Hobachia, um, recently posted a video squatting 800 pounds in training. Uh, so that's 363 kilos. Uh, Anthony competes at 181 or 82 and a half kilos. Um, in the, uh, in the post on Instagram, he said that the 800 was a planned second attempt at the Arnold. One thing to note here is we are recording this, uh, right before like all of the big events of the Arnold go down. So next show, there will probably be more feats of strength because I assume people will do strong people things at the Arnold, assuming they don't all get wiped out by the coronavirus. Um, but yeah, so he posted this as a planned second attempt for the Arnold. 
if he got this in competition, it would break the current world record uh, from Mohamed Raisi by approximately seven pounds or three or four kilos. Um, it looked, I mean, just on video, it looked hard but smooth, like he definitely had more in the tank. So uh, by the time you're listening to this, there very well may be a new squat record at 181. Uh, and for, you know, people who are most comfortable in pounds, breaking the 800 pound barrier at 181 in competition would be absolutely huge. Um, moving on, Hunter Henderson, uh, who is an untested female lifter, uh, recently posted a video uh, squatting 565 for three on a cambered bar. Uh, if you've never played around with a cambered bar before, the weights pretty much hang straight down. Uh, it can be comfortable. It, it can be substantially more comfortable uh, for people with shoulder mobility restrictions, but it doesn't. In my opinion, it doesn't really change how the lift feels all that much. Like it's it's pretty comparable to just squatting on a straight bar. Um, but she did 565 for three. Uh, which is, I should have got that in kilos. It's a lot of kilos. I think it's like 260, 265, give or take. Um, maybe like 255. Anyway, 255, 260, thereabouts. Uh, so Hunter's best squat in competition to this point is 235 kilos or 518 pounds. Uh, I think she's only competed three or four times or or at minimum, she doesn't have that many meets recorded in the open powerlifting database. So, you know, it seems like since her last meet, her squat has absolutely exploded. Um, I think she's currently 10th all time in that weight class and looks like she very well may be about to jump into the top three. The world record in that weight class is 285 or 628 pounds by Christy Hawkins. Uh, that weight class being the 75 kilo weight class or 165 pound class. Um, so who knows? I mean, that's uh, 565 for a triple should project someone out somewhere in the low 600s. Um, so she may be taking a run at the world record in that weight class soon. Anyway, very, very impressive lifting, looked very smooth, depth was good, um, and she also just seemed to have a very pleasant demeanor about it, so the video is fun to watch because she's like smiling between reps, and I think a lot of lifters just take things way too seriously, so like smiling under heavy squats, that's, that's something I do because I like squatting heavy, and it's fun, and I smile when I'm having fun. Uh, so I felt like I connected with her on a spiritual level as well. Uh, but anyway, super, super strong. Very, very impressive. Uh, and then finally, um, probably the biggest feat of strength recently is Daniel Bell uh, broke the all-time world record uh, in the super heavyweight class without uh, without wraps, untested. Um, so Interesting thing about the no wraps super heavyweight world record uh, without wraps isn't contested as as fiercely as the with wraps world record, at least on the untested side of things. So the number one total of all time under those conditions. So, you know, competing in, in the super heavy class without knee wraps um, had been Ray Williams up to this point. So 
you know, kind of crazy that a tested athlete was number one all time. Anyway, Daniel Bell broke his record. Daniel Bell also late last year broke the with wraps world record, um, took down uh, Milanichev's world record. So he now has both the with and without wraps world records in the super heavyweight class. Um, very, very impressive. And also, I could be wrong about this, but I believe this was the first time in history that anyone squatted over a thousand pounds without wraps and deadlifted over 900 pounds in the same meet. So that's a cool milestone in and of itself. His total to in his his total he wound up with was 2,485 pounds or 1,127 and a half kilos. Incredibly strong. Now holds both of those all-time world records. Um, and yeah, I mean, basically the super heavy class is his at this point, and it will be very cool to see how far he takes those records. All right, good stuff. So moving on, uh, I've got a very brief research review that actually relates to a fairly recent article that we uh, that we put up on the website. It was actually a guest article by Danny Lennon. So uh, the paper I want to talk about briefly here, the, the title uh, gives it away, which I know upsets you, Greg. You, you enjoy the mystery in reading your research. Twice as high diet-induced thermogenesis after breakfast versus dinner on high-calorie as well as low-calorie meals. And this paper was by Richter and colleagues published this year in 2020. So what they did here for this study, uh, they had 16 normal weight men, and they it was a crossover trial with two different conditions. Um, what they did uh, was they, they consumed a predetermined low-calorie breakfast uh, and a high-calorie dinner at one of their visits. At another one of their visits, they did the opposite. So the low-calorie meal was 11% uh, of their daily energy requirement, and the high-calorie meal was 69% of their daily energy requirement. And what they did was they used indirect calorimetry to measure the uh, the increase in thermogenesis observed from before the meal to after the meal. They also looked at different parameters of glucose metabolism, and they looked at various measurements related to hunger and appetite uh, over the course of these testing days. So the, the general idea is come in on two different visits. One day we're going to give you a big breakfast and a small dinner. The other time we're going to give you uh, a small breakfast and, and a big dinner. The results here, um, identical calorie consumption led to a 2.5 times higher increase in diet-induced thermogenesis in the morning compared to the evening. Um, and, and that much larger uh, increase in, in uh, diet-induced thermogenesis was observed both during the high-calorie and the low-calorie meals. So um, whether they were in the high-calorie or low-calorie breakfast condition, the meals were inducing a bigger thermogenic effect in the morning compared to when they were consumed in the evening. Uh, now, they also found differences compared to the other things they were looking at. So um, the blood glucose and insulin changes were different um, with breakfast compared to, to dinner. What they found was that the food-induced increase of blood glucose and insulin uh, was diminished after breakfast when compared to uh, after dinner. They also found that in the condition where they gave a low-calorie breakfast, they observed greater reported hunger uh, and specifically greater appetite for sweet foods throughout the course of that day. 
And so the, the, the general premise here in terms of conclusions is that diet-induced thermogenesis appears to be higher in the morning than the evening, whether you're talking about a small meal or a large meal in terms of its caloric uh, content. What their main takeaway was, uh, you know, for most people, eating more calories toward breakfast or early in the day might be preferable compared to shifting more of your calories later in the day, you know, so basically having a big breakfast and a small dinner might be preferable uh, compared to having a really small breakfast and a big dinner. And I mean, the magnitude of the difference when it comes to diet-induced thermogenesis to me was was pretty surprising. But this is actually not the first study to find these types of results. So if you look back to a paper by Morris and colleagues in 2015, they found that diet-induced thermogenesis was about two times higher in the morning than in the evening in that study as well. Um, and so, you know, we recently had a, a really good guest article by Danny Lennon, which was about chrononutrition, basically the relationship between uh, our nutrition habits and time of day, you know, when we are, are eating specifically. And uh, Danny did a great job with the article. When I saw the title of this paper come out, I was like, you know, here we go. We get to, uh, you know, Danny wrote this article. We put it on the website. It was an excellent article. But whenever new research comes out, you have to take a look and say, does this new research drastically change our interpretation of what we thought we knew previously? Um, but Danny's really bright. He's sharp. He's on top of the literature. And this this new study actually fits in quite well uh, with the piece that he wrote for us. And I believe you can find that article at strongerbyscience.com slash chrononutrition. Um, so w- when we look at metabolic responses to any given meal, there's growing evidence that these metabolic responses to some extent do differ based on the time of day, basically the time at which that meal is consumed. So uh, as, Denny, uh, as Danny outlines in the article uh, that we published, uh, gastric, the, the rate of gastric emptying uh, tends to be higher in the morning compared to the evening. Uh, beta cell function tends to be about 15% higher in the morning. And when we talk about beta cells, these are cells in the pancreas. And basically, when blood glucose levels rise, their job is to secrete insulin. Um, And so given those facts, it's pretty unsurprising that the postprandial glucose response or the the glucose response after a meal, uh, we we tend to see bigger glucose excursions occurring in the evening versus in the morning. So uh, there is a growing body of literature indicating that the time at which you consume a meal does have an impact uh, on the immediate metabolic responses to that meal. And, you know, other research has Researchers have really been fascinated in this topic and done uh, and done trials, intervention trials, to actually try to capitalize on some of these metabolic differences. Uh, so, if you look, there's there's a paper by Sutton and colleagues in 2018, and I actually briefly mentioned this paper by Sutton in the Metabolic Adaptation Manual over on the Stronger by Science website. Um, but but the title of their paper was "Early Time Restricted Feeding." improves insulin sensitivity, blood pressure, and oxidative stress, even without weight loss in men with prediabetes. And so what they did in that study was they compared two different um, interventions. One was using a six-hour feeding period with dinner occurring before 3 p.m. So it's not just a restricted feeding window, but specifically pushing the window early in the day so that dinner is over by 3 p.m. Now, the comparison group in that study was just a a fairly typical 12-hour feeding period. Um, one of the big things about that study is they were not comparing the early time-restricted feeding to late time-restricted feeding, 
and the diets were designed to keep people weight stable. So those are two huge aspects of that study design to keep in mind. But generally speaking, that study did find pretty solid results when it came to the outcomes they were looking at related to appetite and different cardiometabolic outcomes. So even without inducing weight loss, just this kind of shift in terms of when calories are consumed uh, did seem to have some pretty positive effects from a metabolic perspective. Um, So getting back to Danny's article on chrononutrition, um, he basically lays out his general uh, interpretation of the literature to date. And like I said, this new study that I'm reviewing here uh, basically lines up quite well with his recommendations. And his recommendations were as follows. uh, Avoid eating during biological night. um, Avoid having, you know, really big, particularly really high fat meals uh, close to bedtime or, you know, during biological nighttime. The general idea is that it might be favorable to bias more of your calories earlier in the day rather than pushing them toward the later part of the day. Uh, he also recommends having consistent meal times and meal frequency from you know day to day. Um, recommends having some semblance of a restic- uh, restricted feeding window. He, he recommends a very, uh, very simple approach. Start with a 12-hour feeding window, which is very normal and kind of working from there to see if you, if you respond better to a more narrow feeding window. Uh, And then he also recommends getting daylight exposure early in the day and avoiding uh, artificial light, particularly in the blue wavelengths uh, later at night. Um, Now, there are some really, really big caveats to keep in mind because you look you you look at these findings in this growing body of literature and it would appear that there is some benefit potentially to shifting your calories earlier in the day. And while that that might be true, there are some important things to keep in mind. Um, So in no particular order, I do want to go through some caveats here. First of all, going to sleep hungry totally sucks and is also difficult. Uh, A lot of people struggle to sleep if they're going to bed hungry. So if you get really extreme shifting your calories earlier in the day to the extent that you're hungry at bedtime, uh, that could potentially backfire. Uh, Some people find breakfast skipping to be a very preferable strategy for reducing caloric intake. It just so happens that Greg and I are both those people uh, where it's easy to kind of wake up, drink some coffee, uh, and just kind of get focused on work. And while you're focused on work, you're not really thinking about food. And it's a very feasible way to all of a sudden you look up at the clock and it's one in the afternoon and you're like, okay, I'm ready to eat now. I've actually not been doing that recently. Oh, really? Um, so this is I, a big change. It, yeah, it is. Because I, I had been doing like intermittent fasting, I guess, for what, seven or eight years at this point, give or take. Yeah. Um, I've actually started eating breakfast and skipping lunch. Interesting. Which, uh, I, I mean, I, I guess if you're one of those people who thinks that there's anything special and magical about intermittent fasting, that just completely defeats the entire purpose. Right. Because I, I don't have that like 16 hour fasting window or whatever. Um, I've actually found that that's been working really, really well for me. So one of the problems I was running into is like, um, so I, I've been, I've been cutting. I've talked about that a little bit. One of the problems I identified in myself is that I have a tendency to eat distracted and not listen to my body's like natural signals for satiety and whatnot. Um, and the meal that I'm the most distracted at is lunch because it's in the middle of the workday. Um, you know, I'm, I'm focusing hard on something work related. 
there's never a convenient time for me to stop working. Um, and so I would always be super distracted eating lunch. Um, and sometimes just wind up eating way too much. And so I've been eating breakfast cause I'm like still tired at that point And literally nothing is in my brain because it's not working yet. Um, so I'm less distracted and then I don't have to take myself away from work during the day. So I, I can maintain my focus better instead of, you know, going and eating lunch and then having to refocus afterwards uh, and then eating dinner at the end of the day. And that's actually been working really, really well for me so far. Nice. So, so the new schedule is you wake up, get breakfast, mm-hmm. get some Instagram content on the yacht, then get into your work and you have dinner later. Pretty much. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, that makes a lot of sense when it comes to the, the distracted eating aspect, for sure. Um, I, I still, I don't know, my, my sleep and eating schedules have been crazy lately. So I, I'm not even going to pretend I have anything resembling a schedule. <laughs> uh, so no interesting changes, because how do you change what is not constant? But in any case, um, another caveat to keep in mind here, it can be pretty devastating when you officially run out of calories for the day. So if you're someone who tracks your macros, what what I've found is I think a lot of people who track their macros daily tend to shift some of their calories later in the day just because it's it's nice to know they're, that they're there. You know what I mean? It's, it's like if you're on a monthly budget and you're just out of money by the 18th of the month, the last couple of weeks of that month are, are pretty stressful. Those are not fun weeks. So um, it can be pretty uh, pretty devastating when you officially run out of calories for the day. And some people really enjoy um, saving their calories, specifically their fat and their carb macros, so that they can have a really nice meal to end the day so that their dinner can be, you know, um, pretty palatable, maybe get some flavors that they couldn't do on, on a, you know, a, a leaner caloric budget earlier in the day. And theoretically, you could have that more indulgent meal in the morning, but I think a lot of people psychologically prefer having it later in the day so they can look forward to it. Uh, another caveat or consideration is that some people train in the evening. And so uh, you, you could obviously consider some issues if if you were really restricting nighttime caloric intake, you know, issues with having adequate nutrition before and after the, the training bout. Um, and then finally, a lot of times social occasions that involve caloric caloric consumption, uh, they, they do often occur in the evening. So that would be one additional consideration to keep in mind. So wrapping it all up here. I do think it's safe to say that all things being equal, there is some pretty solid evidence to support biasing your calories toward the morning. Um, however, for a lot of people, all things are not equal, you know, so that there are a lot of considerations and caveats to keep in mind. Um, if you strongly prefer nighttime eating, um, it's totally fine. Uh, you know, I've gotten as lean as a person would want to get while skipping breakfast and shifting my biggest meal toward the end of the day. So it's not like it's going to be something that completely stops you dead in your tracks and implodes your progress. Uh, However, from a physiological perspective uh, specifically, you might gain a slight edge by shifting some of your calories earlier. Again, that's assuming that all of those factors are basically being ignored. All things considered equal, uh, it does look like you know, shifting calories toward the morning might be an advisable approach. So uh, that does it for my uh, research review. Greg, I understand that you've got a bit of a research roundup for us. 
Yeah, yeah. So just uh, I think I think three studies here. Just going to knock them out pretty quick. So the first study I want to talk about isn't recent. I think it was from 2008 or 2009, but I'm bringing it up specifically with regards to a claim I often see made and a question that I was asked recently on Instagram. Um, So Robert Sapolsky is a a very well-known uh, stress researcher and stress science popularizer, uh, wrote the best-selling book, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. Um, you know, seems like a pretty chill dude. I've read Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. It's a very good book. I'd recommend it. But he has told at least one whopper in his time, and that whopper is that uh, due to the stress response that people get, Um, if you're a chess grandmaster and you're playing very, very intense chess matches, uh, that grandmasters in tournaments can burn up to 6,000 calories a day just from, you know, the sheer mental effort of, uh, you know, chessing that hard. So first off, um, I feel like we could almost dismiss this out of hand because, the effort going on there is mental effort. Um, maybe th- there would be some uh, extra thermogenesis from like tight muscles and like you're you're kind of isometrically contracting muscles and so that's burning some calories. But like most of the excess caloric expenditure would come from elevations in mental effort. Just kind of ballparking things, the human brain burns. Uh, like 600 to 800 ish calories per day, give or take. Uh, so if someone's burning 6,000 calories a day, probably 3,500 to 4,000 of that would have to come from the brain. Um, and like most of the stuff your brain does is just like keeping you awake and alert and processing stimuli that comes in. So just like on its face, we should be able to dismiss this because your brain isn't burning like four to eight times as many calories from focusing. Like that's, that's simply not feasible. I I would also say, I mean, just a brief anecdote, Greg, you know, me, a lot of the day I'm doing productive academic thinking and then the entire rest of the day i'm doing stressed out overthinking correct if these numbers were even close to possible i'd be starving to death on a daily basis right uh so anyway i feel like if (laughs) if you just have like a baseline understanding of physiology and you you know like a ballpark estimate of how many calories a brain typically burns you should be able to realize that this claims kind of out of left field uh but there is Data actually at least somewhat related to this. Uh, So a study by Trubot and colleagues, like I said, from 2008-2009, was titled The Stress of Chess Players as a Model to Study the Effects of Psychological Stimuli on Physiological Responses, colon, an example of substrate oxidation and heart rate variability in man. So as one would expect, it also talked about uh, substrate oxidation and heart rate variability, but... Uh, They measured energy expenditure in this study. So they actually had people play games of chess with a mask on to like measure oxygen and CO2 exchange to estimate energy expenditure. And so before the games got rolling, uh, these chess players and so the the subjects in the study, I will note, uh, were competitive chess players, 
but weren't grandmasters. So that sounds like a limitation, but as you'll see, like there would need to be multiple orders of magnitude differences between regular competitive chess players and grandmasters for for that to be a major limitation. So anyway, they were competitive chess players. I think the average ELO rating was somewhere around 1800 if you follow chess and know about that. Uh, so like, you know, competitive players, but not super, super good. Uh, but anyway, they measured caloric expenditure uh, before the chess match started, uh, early on in the chess match, during the middle of the chess match, and closer to the end of the chess match. Uh, and before the chess match started, these chess players were burning about 1.53 kcals per minute, which over the course of the day would equate to about 2,200 calories per day, which, you know, that's a perfectly normal daily calorie expenditure, you know, that, that checks out, that passes the sniff test. Early on in the game, their calorie expenditure did go up. It wasn't statistically significant, but there was a nominal increase up to 1.67 kcals per minute, which over the course of a day would equate to about 2,400 kcals per day. So essentially, if they maintained that level of elevation in energy expenditure over the course of a day, they'd be burning about 200 extra calories, not about 4,000 extra calories. Uh, And that was just early in the game. I guess, uh, you know, these players found openings stressful, During the mid-game and end-game, calorie expenditure dropped back to about 1.53 to 1.55 kcals per minute, which was identical to what it was before the game started. So essentially, and and so that 2200 versus 2400 comparison I gave, that's assuming like a chess match lasted for 24 hours. And they were early game levels of stressed out and aroused for the entire time. And that's a 200 calorie difference. Um, You you know, even if you assume that it's a slobber knocker chess match that goes on for four hours or so, uh, that, you know, (laughs) you're laughing at slobber knocker chess match. I'm not sure I've ever heard that term. Dude, you should have watched the world championships recently. It was crazy. They had to go to uh, Rapid and Blitz. Don't know what that means. Whatever. Anyway, um, so yeah, so assuming that these games are going four hours long, if it's a 200 calorie difference over the course of of an entire day, that would be like a 30, 40 calorie difference over four hours. So essentially, you would need to be dealing with a 100 fold difference in levels of arousal and excessive calorie expenditure between normal competitive chess players and grandmasters for that 6,000 calories a day number to check out, uh, which that's ridiculous. Like there's, there's no way that that's true. Um, so anyway, Sapolsky's great. I'd recommend you check out his stuff when he talks about chess masters, maybe tune that part out. All right, moving on to actual exercise stuff. Uh, There was a study recently published called Effect of Acute Antagonist Static Stretching on Upper Body Agonist Power by Elliott and Massey. Uh, And so what they were doing essentially was looking at the effects of stretching the rear delts and lats prior to sets of bench press uh, and the effects on bench press peak power output. Um, 
So one of the things that I think most people know or at least have heard about static stretching is that you probably don't want to stretch agonist muscles, at least doing static stretching for them immediately before an exercise that works those same muscles. So for example, um, if you're doing sets of bench press, you probably don't want to do really, really intense pec and tricep stretching immediately before your sets of bench press. Uh, there's reasonably good consistent evidence showing that that decreases force output, decreases power output, um, generally decreases muscular performance. I do think that that fear is somewhat overblown because, for example, if you're just stretching as part of a general warm-up routine and then you do some sort of dynamic warm-up after that, so say, for example, you stretch your pecs and triceps and then, I don't know, do some sets with the bar and like 135 and like sub-maximal weights before you actually get up to challenging loads, that dynamic warm-up movement prep stuff seems to wash out any negative effects of static stretching. So really this only applies to doing pretty intense static stretching immediately before an exercise using the agonist muscles. But anyway, uh, if you do do intense static stretching for agonist muscles before an exercise that works the same muscles, that will decrease muscular performance uh, to some degree. So anyway, I think most people know that. Uh, something that I don't see people talking about as much, but which is actually fairly well supported is that there might actually be a benefit to performance for stretching the antagonist muscles. So for example, if you're going to do something for your quads, stretching your hamstrings beforehand, uh, or in the case of this study, they were testing bench press power. So stretching the rear delts and lats beforehand. So they tested people in two different conditions. One is they just did uh, like a moderate load bench press, tested it for peak power without doing anything really, like just a normal warm-up, no stretching whatsoever. Um, compared to you do a warm-up and then before set one, you stretch your rear delts, you stretch your lats, you do bench press. Then between sets, you stretch your lats, stretch your rear delts again. Uh, so basically comparing no stretch versus an antagonist stretch condition. Uh, and stretching the antagonist muscles before sets of bench press increased power output by about 7%. Um, so th that's not a night and day difference. And a 7% increase in power output, I'll note, is not, not, not identical to a 7% increase in maximal force output or one rep max. Uh, realistically, in terms of like one rep max performance, you know, maybe one or two percent, probably not a huge difference, but maybe a slight positive effect. Um, this study by Elliot and Massey was just looking at power output. There was a prior study by Miranda and colleagues that looked at like rep performance and found that that was also improved by prior antagonist stretching. Um, and this is actually the fourth study with similar findings to this, that stretching the antagonists before doing some exercise for the agonist muscles does improve performance to some degree. Uh, like I said, there was a study by Miranda looking at rep performance. Most of them were looking at like jump performance or in this case, power output in the bench press. Um, so yeah, it, it seems to not be a night and day difference, but if you're someone who is looking for some way to spend your time between sets, you know, you don't 
you don't just like sitting there waiting for two minutes to go by before your next set or whatever, and you want to find something to do, stretching the antagonist muscles to whatever muscles you're currently training, you know, may be a productive way to spend that time. Probably not going to make a huge difference, may make a slight positive difference. The proposed mechanism by which this works is that when you do static stretching, you reduce passive stiffness in the muscle that you're stretching, um, and it, and you might decrease muscle activation a little bit. Um, so essentially, that would decrease antagonist co-activation when you're training. Um, some people are a little concerned about that. So in some of these studies, you'll see the researchers saying like, hey, it improved performance, but maybe antagonist co-activation is important because it helps stabilize the joint. And so possibly this increases injury risk. To the best of my knowledge, there's no like prospective data indicating that it does actually meaningfully increase injury risk. I'm per- I personally wouldn't be concerned about that. Um, but yeah, just throwing that out there. So you are informed of the potential and in my opinion, very unlikely risks. Uh, but yeah, antagonist stretching, probably not a night and day difference. Uh, very likely will have a small positive effect on training performance. Uh, and then the last study I want to talk about is by Dobbs and colleagues, the title of which is Profiles of Heart Rate Variability and Bar Velocity Following Resistance Exercise. Uh, if you're really into HRV, check out this paper. If you're not really into HRV, I wouldn't really recommend checking out this paper because it's quite technical. Uh, and if you're not really into HRV, there's a lot of stuff that's going to go over your head and you're just going to have to do a shit ton of Googling to understand half of the results. Yeah, probably like three quarters of the, of the results. <laughs> um, but basically what they did in this study is they took a group of people and put them through a very brutal squat fatigue protocol. Uh, And so what that consisted of was, on paper, eight sets of 10 at 70% 1RM. But the way it actually went down is if you got all 10 reps in a set, you only rested 30 seconds before your next set. Uh, And if you failed reps... Basically, you you would still have to get those reps in, uh, and then after that, they would drop the weight uh, before you started the next set. But you were getting in 80 squat reps in a pretty short period of time, and if you actually successfully completed a set, you were doing another set 30 seconds later. Um, I think they said only one subject actually got all the way through without having to drop weight, and the most fatigued subject by the end of it was working all the way down at 40% of 1RM by the last set. Um, so yeah, very, very rough uh, squat fatigue protocol. They wanted to make sure that they were... One problem that some studies that are looking at, at different fatigue metrics have is they basically use like too easy of a training protocol, so they don't induce substantial fatigue and decrements of performance in the first place. And so when you're trying to track recovery after that, well, what's actually recovering, you know? Um, so just trying to make the point, they they really put their subjects through the ringer in this study to make sure they induced significant fatigue. Uh, and so they wanted to see whether the rate of recovery of bar velocity um, would parallel that of any of six different 
HRV or heart rate variability metrics they were looking at. So most HRV apps, like just free apps off the shelf, um, will just have like one metric of HRV that they look at. There, there are various different ways that one can analyze heart rate variability data, uh, and they basically compared all of them to recovery of bar velocity to see, like, do any of these things actually correlate with objectively measured physical performance after a fatiguing session? And long story short, they didn't, and none of them came particularly close. So they um, they basically wanted to see how well correlated recovery in bar velocity was with recovery of all of these various HRV metrics. The one that performed best, the, I can't remember if it was the R value or the R squared. I'm pretty sure it was the R value. Uh, so just like the correlation coefficient, not the coefficient of determination was like 0.22, which is essentially no correlation. And that was the best one. Uh, and the cool thing about this study so a drawback of it was it didn't have a ton of subjects, but a strength of not having a ton of subjects is they were able to report all of the individual subject data in graphical form. So if you pull up this, this paper, you can basically look to see on a person-by-person basis how well did their recovery of bar velocity after this fatiguing session track with their recovery of HRV variables. And... There's like maybe one or two that if you squint just right, you can say like, ah, yeah, those are kind of moving in tandem a little bit. For the most part, they seem quite dissociated. And my favorite subject was subject H because subject H got fucked up by this squat session really, really bad. So for the most part, uh, like they they basically looked at HRV uh, a couple hours after the workout and then 24, 48, 72 hours later. And what you see is a decrease in bar velocity uh, post-exercise, a decrease in all of these HRV metrics. And then 24 hours post, bar velocity starts coming back a little bit. The HRV metrics start coming back, but generally come back way, way faster than bar velocity does and often like overshoot their baseline. Um, but like they're not super well associated subject H this poor bastard didn't recover. Like I think this guy got rhabdo and I fear for his life um, because in, in the hours after training, his bar velocity was only like 70% of what it was pre-training. That wasn't too atypical, but when everyone else was recovering or starting to recover by 24, 48 hours post, this poor bastard just kept going down, and by 72 hours post-training, his bar velocity at uh, 70% of 1RM was only 40% of what it was prior to the fatigue protocol. So, like, he just kept getting worse and worse and worse. But then if you compare his bar velocity to his HRV metrics, they were all completely recovered by 24 hours post-training, and then just flat from there. Like 24 hours post-training, he's like, oh yeah, you're recovered. 48 hours, you're still recovered. 72 hours, still fucking golden as bar velocity is continuing to drop off the fucking cliff. Um, so could, could you imagine though, if it was like, uh, 
his coach or something who just swore by HRV <laughs> and he's like, coach, I, I think I'm really hurt. I think I'm sick. Something's wrong. And you're like, no, you're, you're looking good, man. Yeah. So someone could potentially argue that like bar velocity and HRV are, rec- are measuring maybe two different things. So maybe bar velocity is, is exclusively measuring muscular recovery and HRV is looking at more like quote unquote CNS fatigue or CNS recovery. But if, if muscular recovery and CNS fatigue and recovery can be so dissociated that you're basically dying 72 hours post training while HRV is saying, nope, you're good to go again, literally two days ago, there's a problem there. Um, and so the, the thing to note about HRV is like people were really excited and really jazzed about it two, three, four, five years ago, myself included. Um, like I, I, I put myself among that number because I, I think that there's a natural inclination for things that are like tech driven um, and, and like very technical to feel very objective and scientific. And a lot of times I think a lot of lifters and especially very analytical lifters, which I think are, are disproportionately represented in our audience, um, a lot of you guys, well, I should say a lot of us because I, I am included there, um, sometimes want to be able to have something that feels very objective versus just relying on subjective feedback. Um, but in the case of HRV, the objective looking feedback it gives you regarding recovery doesn't seem to be very reliably related with actual performance recovery. Um, and, and so the thing to note about HRV is it was, I believe initially developed to basically look at like heart health with people like in people with disease conditions and heart conditions specifically. So, uh, like if HRV metrics were looking really, really bad for someone with an underlying heart condition that could like tip off medical professionals that, Hey, maybe this heart condition is really about to take a turn for the worse or after some sort of major heart snafu if you start seeing um like these hrv metrics trending up again that's like a slight indication that you're you're getting somewhat out of the woods with cardiac rehab uh so that's how it was initially developed and then it was also found to be quite useful for monitoring and adjusting um aerobic training so it it, there is a fair amount of data suggesting that it's pretty useful in that context for a lot of t- like and for a long time all of the data was either on like disease states, aging populations or uh aerobic athletes. Just in the last 2 or 3 years we've started to see a couple studies looking to see well how well does HRV perform in a resistance training context. And and thus far there aren't really any success stories. Uh it just doesn't seem to do a very good job. So this isn't the first study that found that HRV doesn't reliably uh indicate recovery status in resistance training um and so i I think i wouldn't necessarily say hrv is completely worthless for lifters so like maybe if you're doing concurrent training you maybe use some like some subjective measures to monitor recovering recovery from resistance training or maybe use hrv to monitor uh, recovery status from the endurance training you're doing. But if you're just lifting weights, if you're just doing resistance training, 
I just don't know that HRV is telling you anything worthwhile. Um, it, it seems like it's not something you should be putting much stock in. Fair enough. All right. Well, that concludes the research roundup segment. And now we move on to the Q&A segment. All right. So kicking it off with Eric, we have a question from Dub. Dub asks, Eric, do you have advice for reducing the interference effect for recreational lifters? My goals are mostly strength and physique based. I bike about an hour a day, mostly low intensity with the occasional sprint. Thanks for all the hard work. Love the podcast. That is an excellent question, and it's something we have discussed on the podcast previously. I can't remember what episode number, but it comes up so frequent, so frequently that I think it is worth mentioning again. Uh, the fact that the person asking the question, they mentioned that they're specifically uh, focused on strength and physique-oriented goals. That's actually a really important uh, qualifier here. When you look at the literature on the interference effect, you'll see that you know the, the general premise here is that the addition of cardio type training, you know, added on to your resistance training program, will interfere with your gains in response to your resistance training. That uh, that interference effect is much larger for power than it is for strength and hypertrophy outcomes in response to weight training. Um, the effect on power is largest followed by strength, followed by physique. The The interference effect on physique-related outcomes within, within pretty reasonable training programs isn't particularly large. Um, now, if, if, you, if you were really hell-bent on inducing an interference effect, you could make it happen. But generally speaking, the, the effects on uh, hypertrophy are pretty modest when, when we're talking about the interference effect. Um, now, the, the idea of how do we generally reduce the interference effect... Um, in order to address that, I want to highlight a review paper by Methanitis in 2018. And uh, toward the end of that paper, they give some a, a list of some really good takeaways in terms of how you can try to minimize the interference impact of adding aerobic training or cardio training into your lifting program. And the, the first few are like, they're good tips, but they're pretty advisable no matter what. So the first few... Manage your fatigue within session. You know, make sure it's an appropriate appropriate workload within session. Um, number two, manage overall volume of both your lifting and cardio. Number three, manage your frequency of each tra- training stimulus. Um, what you'll find with the literature on the interference effect is when, when everything is pretty low volume and, and pretty low frequency, you really don't see much interference at all. It's when you start to see the program get a little bit more intensive in terms of the overall volume, the frequency within the week. That's where we start to see more notable interference effects. Um, They did mention in this review paper their kind of guideline, which I think is pretty sensible if you can get away with it, is if you're focused mostly on resistance training adaptations, uh, when it comes to the number of training sessions per week, You'll probably want a two to one or a three a three to one ratio when it comes to your number of lifting sessions versus your number of cardio sessions. So um, once that ratio, once you're doing about as many cardio sessions as you are lifting sessions, now you're kind of getting away from those recommended ratios. Um, number four, uh, another thing that they recommend here, uh, and I'm paraphrasing by the way from this study, so my numbers are just for my purposes. They might not line up perfectly with that paper. Um, 
But the idea is to, uh, when possible, incorporate low-volume, high-intensity exercises in order to uh, reduce the the magnitude of AMPK activation. But I want to throw a huge caveat on that recommendation. Greg and I are old enough to remember back when the fitness industry was really stoked about high-intensity interval training. Everybody was just training themselves into the ground, doing extremely intense interval sessions very frequently. HIT can be brutal. You have to keep your ability to recover in mind. So while this is generally a a solid recommendation, if you get carried away with the super high intensity interval sessions, it can be really tough to recover and that can start to bleed over into your resistance training sessions. I I feel like, uh, so I feel like focusing too much on the AMPK mechanism itself may be a little overboard and has also been, uh, at least called into question by Mm -hmm. some research. So um, essentially why someone might be worried about this is AMPK and mTOR kind of have an antagonistic relationship. And so the mTOR pathway is the one that's, that's most associated with muscle protein synthesis. AMPK pathway actually does a lot of shit, um, but is, is associated with, aerobic training adaptations. And so there's evidence indicating that if you're not doing something to stimulate the mTOR pathway, um, when you ramp up AMPK signaling, that is going to antagonize the mTOR pathway and decrease muscle protein synthesis uh, and, and probably limit hypertrophy and possibly cause atrophy if you're doing really high volumes of aerobic training. There has been research, though, basically looking to see if you have both of these signals going on simultaneously within the muscle, is it still antagonistic? So, oh man, I think this I think the studies that have looked most directly at this um, and if I would have looked at your notes more closely, I would have pulled these up. Uh, but I believe one of them is by Lundgaard, maybe something like that, 2014, uh, and another study by Kazior, K-A-Z-I-O-R, uh, 2016. And so basically both of those studies were looking at if you're doing a fair amount of endurance training and, you know, have a lot of AMPK signaling going on, but then you also do uh, resistance training in close proximity to the aerobic training, does the very, very robust uh, like mTOR activation stimulus from resistance training, does that like overpower the antagonistic effects of AMPK or do we still see AMPK antagonizing the mTOR pathway? And those studies basically found that uh, if you're doing resistance training, that's enough to like overpower the AMPK antagonism of the mTOR pathway. So uh, on one hand, I understand mechanistically where this recommendation comes from um, because in in a vacuum, AMPK does antagonize mTOR, but in the context of concurrent training where you, you are also doing resistance training, I think that that mechanism doesn't really apply to the same degree. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like that would kind of go along with the observation that particularly when it comes to hypertrophy, the interference effect doesn't seem to be particularly robust, even in programs that use lower intensity cardio modalities. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that that is the one recommendation. Like I said, it's a really nice review paper that walks you through 
a huge, uh, a huge percentage of this literature. That's the one recommendation where, you know, both because of that mechanistic reasoning, but also just the practical reasoning of, of managing fatigue and recovery. I think that's the one recommendation they give where I'm a little bit less enthusiastic about it. Um, moving on to number five, there is some evidence that cycling um, seems to induce a little bit less of an interference effect versus running and other more high impact modalities uh, of endurance or cardio training. Um, so if you're going to lean in one direction or the other and you have the ability to choose, preferring some of those lower uh, lower impact modalities might make sense. Um, one thing that comes up a lot is exercise order. And if you're trying to maximize strength, power, hypertrophy, you're going to want to do your resistance exercise first uh, before you do your cardio, if you happen to be doing those uh, in the same day or even in the same session. If your goal is is more focused on endurance capacity, um, then it probably doesn't matter as much. You probably can choose. Um, I, I would say my, my default uh, stance going into it is typically to lift first uh kind of regardless. But, you know, if you're not super worried about your resistance training adaptations, I, I think you can get away with doing the cardio first and, and not seeing a huge impact of that, you know, interfering with your cardio related adaptations. Um, another thing to keep in mind that's kind of related to exercise order is the timing of these different exercise bouts throughout the week. Um, if possible, it would be ideal to separate these training bouts by at least three to six hours or 24 hours if you can afford to. So if your overall number of, of sessions per week allows you to separate your lifting days from your cardio days, uh, that could be advisable. But if you're really focused on maximizing your strength, hypertrophy, and power adaptations, you probably don't want to have a cardio session preceding your lift uh, by three to six hours or less. You'd, you'd want to have a little bit more time to recover between that cardio session and the subsequent lifting session. So those are kind of the basics in terms of how to, um, you know, incorporate concurrent training and have some cardio mixed in uh, while minimizing the likelihood of interference effects. Um, getting back to the uh, uh, the listener's question, which I almost never do, but I am doing this time. Um, you know, the, the, the listener who asked the question mentioned, it looks like pretty much always biking tends to be low intensity with occasional sprinting. They should be able to recover from that really frequently, uh, or, or uh, really, uh, easily. The, uh, the frequency is pretty high. It sounds like it's an hour a day. So the frequency and volume are pretty high, but, um, when it comes to the physique part, probably not leaving too many gains on the table, but, you know, maybe implementing some of those strategies that I just listed might might help out just a little bit for that for that particular scenario. Anything to add, Greg? Uh, I think that about sums it up. Awesome. So we got a question for Greg. This question is from Jared. Uh, Greg, you've written about fiber types, muscle fiber types, and basically concluded that for hypertrophy, strength and endurance, you don't really need to worry about your fiber types. Does that also apply for power and rate of force development? If not, what can be done training-wise to improve those variables? <laughs> so I, I'm going to start by contesting the premise um, and then hopefully get around to, to answering the actual question. So I can't think of a time that I said that fiber types don't matter for hypertrophy, strength, and endurance. Um 
However, I can see potentially where those understandings came from. Uh, so first and foremost, fiber types do absolutely matter for endurance. So I did write an article a while back called something like training based on muscle fiber type. Are you missing out? I think that was the exact title of it. Uh, and one of the things I called into question in that article was basically practical screening tests for muscle fiber types. So it has been proposed by uh, various authors, most notably and most famously Charles Poliquin, that um, you could basically do a rep max test and then have a pretty good idea of what your fiber type distribution was from your from your performance in that test. So I believe the one that he recommended was take 80% of your max, do a set to failure. If you get more than eight reps, you are slow twitch dominant. If you get fewer than eight reps, you're fast twitch dominant. Um, based on basically the premise that slow twitch fibers or type one fibers are less fatigable. So you'll be able to do more reps before failure and type two fibers, fast twitch fibers are more fatigable. So you'll give out a little bit quicker. Uh, the, the other test I've seen proposed is basically the same thing, but it's with 75% one RM, um, with the cutoff point being 10 reps. So you get more than 10 reps, you're slow twitch dominant, you get fewer than 10 reps, you're fast twitch dominant. Uh, and so I called that into question in that article because basically there've been a couple studies that have actually investigated that, um, <laughs> and found that actual measured fiber type distributions like via biopsy aren't super well associated with rep max tests like that. Um, and so I think part of the reason for that is one, you're dealing with tests that have pretty poor granularity. And so by that, I mean like, you know, it, it, take the 80% reps to failure test, for example, uh, you know, Maybe you get seven reps, you almost get eight reps, but you fail. Um, so like, you know, you're either getting that whole eighth rep or you're not. And if you don't get it, you're all the way back down to seven. And so d depending on whether you're looking at seven going to eight or eight dropping back to seven, you're you're you could miss by up to either like 14 percent or 12 and a half percent from like that person's actual strength endurance, uh, or, or, you know, same thing with a 75% test. Um, you know, you either get nine reps or 10 reps. You're basically going by increments of like 10, 11%. Um, so you have poor granularity, you have poor resolution. And also if you're doing tests that are essentially training your your full body, you could be giving out due to reasons other than acute local muscular fatigue. And so, for example, if you're, say, quite strong and you do a set of squats to failure, maybe you give out because your quads give out or maybe you give out just because a set of squats to failure is fucking hard and <laughs> you just can't suck in enough oxygen to, to power the whole operation. Um so, you know, maybe you're type one dominant and you're just in very poor aerobic shape generally. And so you do very poorly on a rep max test, even though you have theoretically a fiber type distribution that would be better for strength endurance. And so that's what I called into question. Basically, it's not that it's not that fiber types don't matter for endurance. It's that 
unless you have access to a fair amount of lab equipment, it's hard to actually do that screening for yourself um, in just like a normal gym setting. However, um, in situations where they actually look at fiber type distributions and look at something like isometric uh, force output with a submaximal uh, level of force output until failure, people with more type 1 fibers do have better strength endurance than people with more type 2 fibers. Um, and for pure endurance type stuff, so, you know, like like a 5K or a marathon, uh, people with a higher relative proportion of type 1 fibers tend to do better in pure in pure endurance sports than people with a greater proportion of type two fibers. So fiber type distribution does absolutely matter for endurance, but it depends on what test you're using, what level of granularity it has, and just generally the overall type of exercise you're dealing with. Um, but I don't, I, I don't want people to come away thinking that I don't think fiber types matter for endurance at all. Uh, they definitely do. It's just context dependent. Um, and then for hypertrophy in, I believe that same article, I called into question the need to train different ways to promote growth in different fiber types. So there's the idea that if you do high rep sets with low loads, you'll cause more type one fiber growth. And if you do uh, lower rep sets with heavier loads, that's going to cause more type two fiber growth. Basically in that article went through the research there doesn't really seem to be much like reliable, robust support for that. Um, however, type 2 fibers do have a greater capacity for hypertrophy than type 1 fibers do. And so all else being equal, in a vacuum, someone with a greater proportion of type 2 fibers will probably, on average, be able to experience more hypertrophy than someone with a greater proportion of type 1 fibers. I don't think that that is the biggest difference. Like if if I if I were to make a list of like what innate characteristics are associated with muscle growth, that would be reasonably low on the list. But if you're just looking at like kind of on a population level, on average, will people with a greater proportion of type one or type two fibers likely experience more hypertrophy? People with a greater proportion of type two fibers will probably be able to grow more just because type two fibers do experience more robust hypertrophy after resistance training. Uh, and then for strength, this is the closest one to it not mattering um, because it's, it, it is a common misconception that type two fibers are actually stronger than type one fibers. So what is true is that uh, power output and maximum shortening velocity are considerably greater for type 2 fibers and type 1 fibers. But if you just look at force output, so a measure called specific tension or force output per unit of cross-sectional area, uh, specific tension are, is actually quite similar for type 1 and type 2 fibers. Um, it may be ever so slightly greater in type 2 fibers, but not to, to any practically meaningful level. So if you're dealing with two people who have the same size muscles, um, so if you're controlling for that and one of them has a greater proportion of type 2 fibers and the other one has a greater proportion of type 1 fibers and you're just looking at maximal force output, it's probably going to be pretty similar in those two people. However, going back to what I previously said about hypertrophy, the person with more type 2 fibers 
will probably on average be able to experience more muscle growth over the course of a training career. Uh, if you're able to grow more, you'll probably also be able to gain more strength. And so on that level, if you're controlling for muscle size, fiber type doesn't matter all that much. But if you come into it with the assumption that someone with more type two fibers will probably be able to grow a little bit more, uh, at least in the long term, fiber type distribution probably matters at least a little bit for strength development as well. So, um, I think I'm done uh, contesting the premise at this point. Fiber types probably do matter at least to some degree for endurance, hypertrophy, and strength. Matter to a great to a great degree for endurance, not quite as much for hypertrophy, even less for strength. But they probably do matter at least to some degree for all three of them. And, um, and before you move on, it's worth noting we did have a an interview a while back with Lauren Colenzo Semple. Um, and she talked a lot about fiber types. Uh, she did, uh, uh, I guess an internship, maybe she, she, she spent a summer in Andy Galpin's lab. And so we talked to her all about how they measure fiber type and, and all sorts of fiber type related discussions. So that was one of our early episodes. If you want to go back and check that out. Yes. Uh, so, okay. Now that I'm done being a dick and contesting the premise of this question, <laughs> um, Jared asked, uh, basically do fiber types matter for power and rate of force development? And, uh, yes, they do very much so. So type two fibers, uh, contract with more power, have greater shortening velocity. Very, very important for that. Like I said, not super, super important for a sport like powerlifting, but for a sport like throwing, probably for weightlifting, uh, definitely a sport like sprinting, if you have a greater proportion of type two fibers, that is going to be very, very good for you. Um, so then he also asked basically, is there a way to, it wasn't clear if he was saying like, is there a way to train type two fibers or is there a way to train to improve velocity and, and power output? Uh, I'm going to take it as the second, the second option. Um, and so basically, Basically, that's a question that deserves a book, <laughs> training for speed and power output. Uh, but the very, very short answer to that question is one thing you can start with is by profiling an athlete and, and basically taking an inventory and seeing are they like, quote unquote, too weak or quote unquote, too slow? Because generally, if you're dealing with a sport where power output matters, um, you're looking at somewhere in kind of the intermediate range of the force velocity spectrum. And so it's, it's hard to like pull up on the middle range of that spectrum. We've talked about this on the podcast before, but it is fairly easy, at least in someone who's not already a super advanced strength athlete to get them stronger, to increase maximal force output. And for someone who hasn't done much high velocity training it's also not super hard to get them faster. So to improve maximum shortening velocity and just, you know, overall velocity. And so if you determine where an athlete is lagging, are they too slow or are they too weak? You can focus more of your training on either getting them stronger and thus improving power output that way or getting them faster and improving power output that way. I assume most people listening to this podcast have a pretty decent idea about how to get stronger um, as far as getting faster goes, you could do things like body weight training or like plyometrics, but 
there's there's actually a decent amount of data looking at overspeed stuff. So like, for example, doing jumps with a band set up where the bands are hooked above you so that you're you're jumping faster than you could with just your body weight. So you're you're generating faster takeoff velocities um, similar in concept to like downhill sprinting. You don't want to do that down a very, very large incline. You're going to one that's going to cause a lot of muscle damage. It's going to be pretty brutal Two, You might fall head over heels, scrape your face up. No one wants that, but you know, relatively gentle incline. You can turn your legs over faster than you would be able to on flat ground. Um, so like overspeed stuff seems to help with maximal velocity development. Um, but if you're if you're thinking more just like like general normal ass weight training for developing uh, like power output generally, something that seems to work reasonably well is just training further from failure with with intermediate loads. So in our last episode, I talked about research uh, looking at the effects of training closer to failure or further from failure with sets equated on strength development. So there were four or five studies by uh, Pereja Blanco and and his general research group uh, in this area. There was a paper by Carroll and colleagues, uh, and I talked about Eric Helms's um, main PhD study. So Eric's PhD study is irrelevant here because he didn't look at uh, like power velocity outcomes. All of the rest did. And so what I talked about in the last issue was, or or the last episode was just talking about strength because that's what, you know, 99% of you guys care about, uh, at least people who aren't mainly physique focused. But, you know, there's a lot of strength athletes listening to this or people with general strength goals. So I only talked about the strength stuff last time. Most of those papers also looked at metrics like sprint speed or jump height or, or measures of power output, stuff like that. I didn't talk about that in the last episode because most people listening to this don't care. Um, But most of those studies did assess outcomes like that and found that while training a little bit further from failure or a little bit closer to failure didn't really seem to matter for strength outcomes for the most part, staying further from failure, even equating for sets, generally led to better improvements in sprint speed, jump height, uh, outcomes like that. So... It could just be that, um, you know, you're you're generating less fatigue, you're getting overall more synchronous recruitment of those muscles. And, you know, maybe that translates to better performance um, just because you're you're training in a less fatigued state and your performance is snappier and more explosive for the majority of your training. Another possibility is uh, to this point, I've been talking about type one versus type two fibers, but they're also Again, two general subcategories of type 2 fibers. So there's type 2 X fibers and type 2 A fibers. And type 2 X fibers are even more fatigable than type 2 A fibers, but they're also even more explosive. So they have greater power output, greater shortening velocities. And in general, if you undertake really any kind of rigorous training, you get a pretty fast interconversion of type 2 X fibers to type 2 A fibers. That's true whether you're doing reasonably high volume resistance training or cardio or really pretty much any type of training. Uh, You get very, very rapid 2X to 2A interconversion. However, there's some evidence showing that if you keep training volumes reasonably low, 
and don't generate much fatigue and stay fairly far away from failure, you get less 2x to 2a interconversion, and that may also be contributing to some degree to the uh, greater improvements in power output and velocity that we see in those studies with people training further from failure. Um, So that would be my general advice. One, just profile the athlete. Do they need to get stronger? Do they need to get faster? And then for training kind of in in the intermediate range of the load spectrum, uh, keep volumes reasonably low, stay further from failure. Don't try to generate much fatigue with your resistance training. Um, You know, maybe that's going to improve performance due to neural factors. Maybe it's going to improve performance due to minimizing 2x to 2a interconversion. Um, But overall, it seems to be a positive. Good stuff. All right. Andrew Flounders asks Eric, could taking TMG or betaine uh, for its osmolite properties during a peak week potentially enhance water stored in the muscle uh, and be a viable option for natural bodybuilders? And has it been tried before? It's a good question. So we're talking about trimethylglycine or betaine, which is, I don't know if it's becoming more popular, but I'm certainly hearing about it more. Um, in the supplement world, uh, particularly when it comes to strength and physique-oriented folks. Um, Has it been tried before? Probably. I think just about everything's been tried in natural bodybuilding, but it's a good question, and I do think that it could uh, theoretically be an advisable strategy. Um, One big caveat there, I don't like making big changes during peak week. Um, I think a lot of people who who are in the bodybuilding world generally advise against making really drastic changes unless you have to. Uh, Certainly, you know, the ideal scenario is that two weeks before the show, every day when you wake up, you look like you can walk on stage no matter what you're doing. And if that's the case, I mean, it's hard to get there, but that's a nice place to be. What we don't want to do is get to peak week and say, oh, we kind of botched a few things and now we got to try some, you know, some magic here and see if we can get this to work. Um, when it comes to this particular idea of doing betaine for peak week, the idea here, it, it does have osmolytic properties. It should theoretically uh, increase the amount of fluid stored within the, within the muscle, which is ideal and should look good on stage. It's the, the, the same reason we tell people a lot of times people, as the competition date approaches, they say, hey, should I get off of creatine because of the, the water retention? We say, no, keep it. We actually, we like that water retention. Uh, same thing with, with betaine here, uh, but there's really no reason to force it into peak week. Uh, what we want to do is basically take plenty of it, uh, saturate our storage, and, and we should be able to enjoy that osmolytic effect without necessarily rushing it at the end and introducing all this variability the week of the competition. So what I would recommend is, you know, if you if you've got a, a physique competition coming up, I'd say when you're four to six weeks out, if you're not already on creatine and betaine, that would probably be the time to get it going. You know, maybe even six to eight weeks. Uh, like for example, creatine, if you're just doing five grams a day, it's probably going to take you a good three or four weeks to fully saturate. So, you know, a month or two before competition, I'd say, you know, that's when you would want to get the creatine going. And I'd say might as well get the betaine going at that point as well. Now, on the topic of betaine, listeners might remember we talked to Dr. Jason Kaliva about this a while back. I think it was in episode number two. 
now, eventually, I do plan to do a, a deep dive into the betaine literature and write up an article about it. Um, but while we're on the topic, I did want to at least give some useful highlights of what the literature has in store. So there, there have been a couple uh, meta-analyses looking at different outcomes that would be relevant to our listeners. So one was a, a systematic review and meta-analysis looking at fat loss outcomes. And if you're a mass reader, uh, you'll know that I reviewed this uh think a few months ago, but they they did a meta-analysis. They found six qualifying studies with 195 total subjects, uh, and they were looking at various uh, outcome measurements related to weight loss or fat loss. The studies tended to be anywhere from 10 days to 24 weeks in duration, and the BTN doses ranged from 2 grams a day to about 10 grams per day. Um, only two of the studies had a training component. Um, both of those were pretty well-designed risk resistance training protocols. The other studies did not have any exercise training component throughout. Now, betaine did not alter body weight, BMI, or waist circumference when they kind of, uh, you know, jammed all the studies together and looked at the, uh, the pooled effect estimate. However, when they looked at, uh, you know, more direct measures that we would be interested in, specifically looking at fat mass and body fat percentage, uh, what they did find was significant effects favoring betaine compared to placebo. So the the pooled effect when it comes to fat mass was a loss of a little over 2 kilograms, 2.25, and body fat percentage went down by about 2.4% uh, in, in, in comparison to the placebo. And that, that's a reduction of 2.4 percentage points, not a 2.4% reduction. Okay, so that's kind of a, an important distinction there. Um, now, the most impressive results that, that, were, uh, that basically fit into that meta-analysis when you look at the individual studies, they were done by uh, Jason Kaliva, uh, which is actually fantastic. Um, a lot of times when we look at a supplement, we'll be like, okay, which studies were really impressive? Like, who does this actually work for? And I feel like nine times out of 10, it's like, oh, sedentary people that are overweight or obese that aren't training. And we're like, well, that doesn't necessarily have a lot of relevance to what we're trying to do here. Um, the really cool thing about Jason's studies on this topic, uh, one was in, in male subjects, the other in female subjects, but they were all like pretty lean, pretty active people doing good resistance training programs throughout. So the the most impressive results in terms of fat loss also happen to be the studies that used what I would say is probably the most relevant uh, study designs for our, uh, our, our listeners because they were doing structured resistance training throughout. Um, and so overall, the results of that meta-analysis do seem to be consistent with the idea that Taking two and a half grams a day uh, of betaine for at least six weeks in conjunction with a well-structured uh, lifting program probably could facilitate uh, both increases in lean mass and reductions in fat mass, specifically when you look at those studies by Kaliva and colleagues. Uh, the big caveat there is just a very small body of literature. Um, like I said, I think only six studies fit the inclusion criteria for that meta-analysis. And, and that's in general, like, like I said, they had all those different outcomes. So for each individual outcome, you know, they might've only had three or four studies that actually measured that thing. Uh, so very small body of literature. That's one of those meta-analyses that I like to say is for generating hypotheses rather than, than conclusions. Um, way too little literature to say, oh, cool. Glad we know that. Um, but certainly enough literature to say, okay, this could be a promising, uh, 
uh, supplementation strategy to consider. And unfortunately, we kind of have to wait on more uh, more evidence to come out to to really validate what we see in that particular meta. Um, one thing that's important to note here, you could, like I said, the, the, the dose that seemed to be reasonably effective was two and a half grams a day. And certainly supplementation is easy, but you could you could very feasibly increase your dietary intake of betaine uh, within that range without using supplements. So the average uh, human dietary betaine intake is roughly 100 to, uh, to about 400 milligrams per day. But there are several uh, food sources of betaine that provide a pretty good dose per 100 gram serving. Uh, so, for example, wheat germ, over 1,200 milligrams uh, of betaine per 100 gram serving. Spinach is 600 to 650 milligrams, give or take. Beets, uh, about 115 to about 300 milligrams. Uh, pretty high betaine levels in pretzels, shrimp, uh, wheat bran. So th- there, there are several foods that are reasonably palatable where you could get uh, a decent amount of betaine. And if, if I were going to go the betaine route and not do a supplement, I'd probably put a bunch of spinach in my smoothie, a bunch of wheat germ, blend that up. And the wheat germ goes pretty well in smoothies, and it's a, a pretty concentrated dose of betaine. Um, this is just an aside. I feel really bad for spinach in general. Why? So like betaine is named after the fact that it was like initially kind of discovered in beets. Yeah. Right. And when you think of like nitrate, we talk about nitrate all the time as a supplement. You go like, oh, okay, yeah, beet juice, right? Same thing. But like spinach has way more betaine per 100 grams than beets. Spinach has a ton of nitrate in it and it just completely gets overlooked because beets are flashy and bright red and they get red stains all over everything. I feel like spinach just totally gets looked over. It's really not cool. But uh, spinach has everything you'd ever want. Eat more spinach. Beets are also great. But yeah, you, you could totally get realistic amounts here without having to go the supplementation route if you wanted to. The other uh, systematic review meta-analysis I wanted to talk about was uh, focusing on strength and power outcomes. This one was done by Ishmael and colleagues in 2017. That actually might have been a single author paper, um, now that I think of it. But um, in that meta-analysis, looking at strength and power outcomes, again, only seven studies qualified at the time it was published. So very small body of literature. Those studies tended to be one to six weeks in duration, tended to give doses between two and 2.5 grams per day of betaine. Most of the subjects in these studies were relatively young resistance trained men, not exclusively, but most of them. Now, this study, only two of the seven studies that were included found uh, statistically significant positive effects on an outcome measure related to strength or power. Uh, So there was a study by Lee and colleagues that was done in 12 resistance trained men. They had a 14-day supplementation period, and it was a crossover trial. So they either did 14 days uh, with the the betaine or the placebo, and then they came back later and switched and took the other for 14 days. Um, They found improvements in isometric bench press force, isometric back squat force, and they also found uh, an an improvement in, I think it was bench press throw power. Um, However, there were no differences in jump squat power or the number of bench press or squat repetitions to fatigue. There was another study by Pryor and colleagues, uh, an, another crossover trial with seven-day supplementation periods. Um, and, and in that particular study, there was no training going on during the supplementation period. The previous study by Lee, they did have a, a kind of standardized training program that was going on. Uh, 
But with Pryor and colleagues, um, compared to placebo, the betaine, what they found was improvement in a bunch of power-related indices on a cycling like sprint test. Um, but that's pretty much it. Um, there's those two studies showing a few of these outcomes to, to significantly improve. One of Kaliva's studies in 2013 in resistance-trained men, um, they did find, I know for Greg this is a bad word, what some might call a trend toward an improvement in vertical jump performance. The p-value was 0.07. Um, yeah, that's uh, an argument. I don't, to be fair, I don't know if Jason actually used that term in his paper. This was what the the review paper said. He better not have. Well, if he did, we'll, we'll bring him on the show and, and call him out. I slept under that man's roof. That's true. I know. Um, but in any case, so, I mean, when you look at the totality of this literature pertaining to strength and power outcomes... Only two of the seven studies found positive, you know, significant positive effects on some number of outcomes that they measured. Generally speaking, the results for strength and power outcomes are not particularly impressive. Um, Generally speaking, the power related outcomes tend to be a little bit more likely to find a significant outcome compared to the strength just from like a superficial kind of cursory glance of the, the literature. One of the things that jumps out to me personally is that those power-related indices also tend to be quite variable. You know what I mean? Like you can get some wacky variability in 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 like peak power output and stuff like that. So I do wonder how much that increases the likelihood that the significant effects that have been observed are really just kind of type one errors. No fault of the researchers, but just the fact that some of these power indices can can jump around quite a lot. There's a lot of volatility. Um, a little bit less reliable than like a straight reps to fatigue test or something like that. So, um, you know, that's to be explored later. Like I said, it's, at some point I do want to take a really deep dive into the betaine literature, but a cursory glance of the literature looks pretty pom- pretty promising for fat loss, uh, somewhat promising for increasing lean mass. A, a large portion of that probably is due to the osmolytic effect of betaine being stored. The strength and power stuff, not great, particularly for strength and strength endurance, really not super exciting, but some uh, some explosive power type exercises seem to be improved there. Now, there was uh, also a study fairly recently by Schwartz and colleagues in 2019 where they looked at a pre-workout uh, supplement that did have 2.5 grams of betaine. That's kind of what what I would consider to be like your basic dose of betaine if you wanted to make sure you were replicating what what is used in the literature. Um, so, so they used a multi-ingredient pre-workout supplement. Really important thing to keep in mind before we get into the results. This pre-workout supplement had six grams of citrulline malate, five grams of creatine. It had a good dose of caffeine, a good dose of beta alanine on top of the betaine. So in terms of determining how much of the results are attributable to betaine, that's extremely difficult to do. And frankly, you could argue kind of impossible to do. Uh, but they had a four-week supplementation period with this pre-workout supplement or a placebo. And throughout the study, the, the participants did a structured, supervised uh, resistance training program, uh, two upper body sessions a week, two lower body sessions. And it, it was a pretty well put together program um, after taking a peek at it. Now, Compared to the placebo, the supplement induced larger increases in lean mass, and it was 3.15 kilograms versus 0.9. Um, you're making a face, Greg. That's a lot, dog. It is a lot. Uh, it is a lot, dog. But when you consider the fact... I was more looking at the squat numbers. 
Yes, the the squat one rep max, uh, the difference between groups, one group went up 23.9 kilos, the other went up 14.2 kilos. That's a lot, dog. That's a lot. Uh, There were also larger increases observed for the bench press one rep max. Uh, So the supplement group increased by 10.5 kilos and the placebo group increased by 4.6, but that was not statistically significant. It's pretty close, but, but not quite. I don't remember the p-value, but if you look at the trends in the data, it it looks quite similar to the squat outcomes. So the thing to keep in mind, though, uh, the thing that I saw a lot of people that really got got them to raise their eyebrows, I guess, was the lean mass increases. I saw some people saying, hey, what happened there? I mean, that's probably creatine and uh, betaine. Exactly. So my, my argument was, you know, yeah, the squat numbers are pretty large. The lean mass numbers, I was far less surprised about, uh, you know, training alone, you know, in, in the placebo group seemed to put on almost a kilo. And then you consider creatine, it would not be crazy to think we're talking about one to two kilos from from fluid retention from the creatine. Then we factor in an osmolytic effect of betaine as well. And we're easily getting up to that 3.15 kilo mark, assuming that none of these other ingredients had anything to do with hypertrophy whatsoever. Okay, so... Uh, but but I think that number gets more directly to the question of the listener, which is, you know, getting ready for a physique related competition. Should I think about, you know, throwing on some some betaine in there for an osmolytic effect? And I like I said, I would throw creatine in there as well. I think there is good evidence uh, from the literature to suggest that you should get a pretty solid osmolytic effect from both of those combined. Um, and that's going to do nothing but help you on stage. Like I said, though, I, I would not recommend implementing that right before the competition just because you want to make sure that whatever fluid uh, retention happens you want to give it a second to kind of settle redistribute to where it needs to go and not end up walking with like a bunch of fluid retention in places that you didn't want it okay so um betaine very fascinating like i said I, i do intend to take a really deep dive into that literature at some point um so keep an eye out for that whenever Greg and Lindsay tell me that I need to write another article. That might be one of the one of the top ones on the pile there. Sounds good to me. Okay, Greg, what do you think? Should we move on from the Q&A or do you want to do one more? This this last one's going to be pretty fast. Cool. Okay. So um, last Q&A question. This one is for Greg. It's from Fozzie Jim. The question is, are programs limited by our natural tendency to think in weeks? Could benefits be had by having microcycles that last, for example, five days or nine days or something like that? So that's a good question. And to answer it, I think we first need to take a step back and consider the concept of time. I'm just kidding. That's ridiculous. Uh, No. So um, I think this is a really interesting question. And this is actually something that I've played with before. So um, a lot of people... (laughs) it it seems like a lot of people have like a quasi existential crisis if they're determining whether to train three days per week or four, because with three days per week, it's like, "Mm, I have two days off. Feels like I should probably be doing more like that. That seems unproductive. Like I'm wasting time, but then four days per week. Oh no, I'm putting two workouts back to back. Which two will those be? Will the second one be horrifically negatively impacted by the first one i don't know this isn't good um but yeah so like that i don't know i've seen a lot of people 
debate three or four days along kind of those lines. And a very, very parsimonious explanation, actually, or or, uh, solution, I should say. Actually, before I get into this, if you're listening to this and you are unaware of the classic bodybuilding.com thread of two posters arguing about how many days are in a week, Google it. It's incredible. It's one of the best pieces of found art on the internet. They were arguing about how many days are in a week. Yeah, it's it's related to this. Oh Just, my god. You haven't seen that? No, I've never seen that in my life. Bro. Okay, so if you haven't seen this, just Google like bodybuilding.com argument argument about how many days are in a week. Like it's it's just as ridiculous as it sounds. Um it's it's one of the best things that has ever come out of fitness culture. I promise you. Anyway, uh very very parsimonious uh solution to you know, I don't want to take two days off in a row, but I also don't want to train two days back to back in a row. It's just having eight day micro cycles. So you train four times per eight days. You train, you rest, you train, you rest, you train, you rest. You can just alternate training days and rest days. Your your functional unit of training is, is eight days long um, or six days, like doesn't matter. Uh, that, that's a pretty simple way to kind of square that circle. But here's the deal. That makes a lot of sense to me. I actually trained on an eight day week for a long time. Uh, when I was doing West side, that is how I implemented it. So I didn't want to do my dynamic effort, upper body and lower body days back to back. So I would do, uh, you know, dynamic lower on day one rest, or or, uh, max effort lower on day one, rest, max effort upper on day two, rest, dynamic effort lower on, on, I'm saying the days wrong. You get the fucking point. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Anyway, so workout, rest, workout, rest. Like that's what I did. Made a lot of sense to me. Um, I tried that with some clients before. They hated it. Every single one of them hated it. Um, not because it was necessarily bad, but just because you can't assume that humans are completely like a, a completely separate system that is divorced from everything that's going on around them. Uh, because the entire world functions with weeks there, there are just like natural ebbs and flows in life. Like most people work Monday through Friday. You have the weekends off that there's that natural like cyclical flow of things. Um, You know, maybe you want to get your, your biggest squat day in on Monday because you just had the weekend off. You had a couple days to sleep in. You're well rested. And that's, and, and that helps you get your week started off right. Or maybe like your week is generally busy, like Monday through Friday, but you have more time to train on the weekends. And so you can set up your training program such that your two biggest days of training are Saturday and Sunday or either on Saturday or Sunday just to take advantage of the fact that you have more time on the weekends. Like that, There are practical considerations that make setting up your training around a seven-day week very, very practical. Um, and I think there are are theoretical arguments to be made for like a six day microcycle or an eight day microcycle. But at least in my experience, most of the people who I tried to get on board with that just didn't like it um, because, you know, 
humans are completely disembodied from society. So, uh, yeah, I, I think that, you know, if you're someone who doesn't give a shit about any of that, I think it's, it's certainly worth giving a shot. I doubt it actually matters all that much. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. I feel like that wasn't an incredibly good answer to that question, but you know, basically theoretically it's worth a shot. Practically, it seems like a lot of people don't really want to get on board with it. Um, but you know, if that's not something that matters to you, give it a shot. If that's not something that matters to your clients, give it a shot. Uh, ultimately I doubt it makes that big of a difference in the first place. Yeah, I, I think you answer that pretty well. I, I think generally speaking, it's like, yeah, that physiologically it, it it seems arbitrary to cut your training into exactly seven day pieces that are that are inherently repeatable. Um, but yeah, it very much makes sense to cut your life <laughs> into very repeatable seven day pieces. And whenever there is that discrepancy between the two and you're managing these you know, uh, these cycles that are kind of out of order with each other, I could imagine that be immensely frustrating. Like I I can't, I can't imagine if I were to program for, for any of my clients, some kind of, you know, repeating five or nine day micro cycles, I I think it would be chaos. And from, for me as a coach going in and doing (laughs) like, Oh no, half my clients are on nine day cycles and half are on five day and some are on seven. That'd be a nightmare. So I think, I think uh, physiologically it makes all the sense in the world, but pragmatically speaking, it'd be, it'd be a tough sell for a lot of people. Yeah. That's, that's a very, that's a much more parsimonious way to explain it. All right. Well, uh, let's go ahead and move on. We've got uh, one of our newer segments called on the rise. And this is a segment where we give a shout out to, uh, people that are making fitness content that we like and that we want to, uh, draw attention to what they're doing. So Greg, who is on the rise this week? All right, so I'm going to start with an honorable mention, and that is Marco Sterpa. Uh, Marco, I'm pretty sure, like, posted to Instagram or social media or something and told his followers to come fill out the form. Either that or he just has very, very dedicated followers, and if so, that's awesome. Uh, Marco was by far the most recommended person on on our form that we told people to fill out. Um The problem is not necessarily that his content is bad, but I don't know if his content is good or bad because Marco is Italian. And uh, (laughs) if you've ever seen uh, Inglorious Bastards, I'm the person in that group who speaks the third most Italian. Uh, Then the person says, I don't speak any Italian. And Brad Pitt says, exactly, you speak the third most. Uh, So anyway... I speak no Italian whatsoever. Um, I do, so on a selfish level, uh, Marco's shared some of my content before. Like, I definitely recognize the name. Um, I checked out some of his stuff to basically see what people he frequently shared content from, and it was people who I generally trust and respect as well. So I assume Marco's content is great. However, I can't say that for certain, because again, I speak no Italian whatsoever. However, um, on a surface level, it seems good. <laughs> um, so if he's you, probably a parody account that shares all your work and just mocks it oh viciously. God, maybe so I might be digging my own grave <laughs> right now, but anyway, Marco seems good. Um, if you are Italian and you're into fitness, check him out. And if he's not good, 
let me know so I <laughs> so I can retract this honorable mention. Uh, but yeah, no, no. So being serious, uh, I'm I'm like ninety percent sure you should check him out if you're in the Italian fitness space. Uh, his website is called Science to Muscle. So science the number two muscle dot it. Uh, you can find him on Instagram at marco.sterpa so m-a-r-c-o dot s-t-e-r-p-a uh, and he also has a youtube channel science to muscle but in this case the the two is spelled out so science t-o muscle not the number two um so our actual shout out this time B- before you go on I, th- th- this is something that brings me a really uh unjustifiable amount of stress but every now and then i'll get tagged in something on instagram and it'll be in a language I don't speak, but tagging me and, and like clearly about something I've done. And I'm always like, okay, they took the time to tag me. That's very kind. And I want to like it, but I have no idea what this says. And I have no idea what I'm, <laughs> what I'm co-signing on. And it's in a format that I can't easily like type into a translator. I, that is a very stressful situation. So if you have ever tagged me in something that's in a language I don't speak and I neglected to like it, it's certainly not personal. I, I'm just scared of <laughs> yeah, signing like, on for things that I have no idea what they're saying. Yeah, like it, it probably says something like, Eric's a smart dude and his content is great. You should read this article. But there's like a 0.01% chance that it says like, Eric is a glorious representation of the superior white race. And you're just like, well, <laughs> I, I don't want to be associated. Do with I that. risk co-signing this? <laughs> um, no, just like, God, look what that idiot Trexler's up to again. Look yeah. at this quote. And I'm like, I, I don't know. I don't know. But with the balls to tag you as well. Yeah. which I mean, I mean, I mean honestly, I would like it in that case. Like, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't appreciate the message. I appreciate the chutzpah. No, that's a good point. I mean, at, at least they would have the decency to tag you. But no, I mean, that really is the thing is like, you're sure that it's probably something that's very nice and like, sure, I'll go ahead and like it. But there is that little small percentage chance that they're either saying something horrifically just despicable and offensive or giving some kind of reckless fitness recommendation that I would never advocate. So th- there's just no winning <laughs> in that situation. But OK, so let's move on. Who else is on the rise this week? Okay, so uh, our actual person this time around is Travis Pollen. Uh, so Travis, Travis is, has actually been in the fitness space for a while. I think he and I kind of got into the fitness industry around the same time, 2012, 2013, give or take. Um, I, I remember seeing his name, uh, you know, mentioned and tossed around all the way back then. But the thing about Travis is that... Uh, he he actually cares about education. And so I think around that time he may have been finishing up undergrad and he is currently a PhD candidate, meaning he's finished his coursework and is now working on his dissertation to complete his PhD uh, in rehabilitation sciences at Drexel University. Um, so, you know, he, he's someone who takes his education seriously. Uh, I've been, I've been aware of him and at least like loosely following him for, God, like I said, probably like seven or eight years at this point, um, consistently puts out good content. He's he doesn't put out content as frequently as uh, Megan, who we mentioned last week, and probably not as frequently as other people we will mention in this segment, because 
I mean, like I said, he's a full-time PhD student. He's not a full-time content creator, but when he does put stuff out, it's really, really good. Um, he's very thoughtful. Like you can tell he, he does his research and does his reading before, like he's, he's not throwing out uneducated opinions left, right, and center. The content he does put out is really, really good. Um, so a lot of his content that he does put out relates to biomechanics, movement screening, uh, exercise demonstrations, um, aimed at trainers, physical therapists, and just general exercise enthusiasts. Um, another cool thing about Travis is that he only has one leg. Uh, he was born without one of his legs. And so some of the videos he posts is just him doing really cool single leg feats of strength. Um, and it may be like that part may be cooler to me than most people because my single leg strength is utter and complete shit. Um, but I find some of the stuff he can do quite impressive. So, uh, Travis is awesome. He's, he's also, he's also just someone who's, who's just straight up good vibes. Uh, I have never heard anyone speak ill of him and I have never had a negative interaction with him. And I have never witnessed him having an interaction with someone online that wasn't positive. Like he's, he's a great dude, uh, very positive, just a fun person to follow. Uh, and yeah, you should check him out. So his website is fitnesspollinator.com. Uh, has a little B logo as a, as a play on his last name of pollen. He is also at fitness underscore pollinator on Instagram. And he, uh, recently launched a new coaching venture, uh, with a partner and it's called three M athletic performance. And you can find that at three M dash ap.com and links to all of that will be in the description. So, uh, Travis Pollen, guy on the rise. I assume he's going to to become a much bigger deal in the fitness industry soon, uh, as soon as he finishes up his studies. But if you want to get in on the Travis Pollen ground floor, now is the time. You should definitely check him out. Okay, this week's episode is almost over. But as always, we've got our final segment called To Play Us Out. Uh, and this week, uh, you know, if you listen to our podcast, you're probably at least somewhat interested in educational content. Greg and I always talk about fitness related topics and kind of a scientific look at those topics. Um, but there's a good chance that you're interested in, edu- you know, fun, informative educational content that is not fitness related. So, Greg, what are the, the main places where you're getting that type of fun educational content? So there are a lot. Um, this probably isn't something that comes through in the podcast, but if you talk to anyone who knows me in real life, um, probably 60% of my sentences start with fun fact. Uh, cause I just like learning random shit and, and trying to be generally well-read and well-informed. Um, but for just kind of like very easily accessible, fun, educational content, uh, I'm going to recommend three YouTube channels worth checking out and one podcast that I've really, really gotten into recently. So uh, first YouTube channel is called Veritasium. Um, so it is a physics-based channel, um, basically trying to make physics 
accessible and easy to understand for people. So the guy behind the channel, his PhD is, I believe, in physics with a focus in education. So he's not just like some physics dude who assumes that everybody knows physics um, and explains things on a very technical level. It, it's it's very, very easy to consume and also to understand, and he makes it really, really memorable. So I, I'd recommend the YouTube channel Veritasium. I'm also very into math and a very fun and accessible, typically accessible math channel is called Numberphile. So the guy behind the channel, his name is Brady. I don't believe he's a mathematician, but he basically just travels around and has various mathematicians talk about the stuff they know about and are passionate about. And so some of those are really, really good. Some of it will probably go over most people's heads. However, there is one person who's on the on uh, on the channel pretty frequently named James Grime, who is just an absolute delight to learn fun things about mathematics from. So uh, he's a very excitable ginger British guy. Uh, so check out the number file channel. Look for a, a ginger who looks just incredibly excited and happy in the thumbnail. That's probably James. And it's very, very entertaining content if you like math at all. He also has his own YouTube channel, James does, called Singing Banana. He doesn't upload to it very frequently, but there's a lot of older videos that are well worth checking out if you like mathematics at all. Uh, for cooking content, it should be pretty obvious by now that I'm very into cooking. Uh, so there's there's a, a lot of YouTube channels I follow for cooking content. That's probably the thing I spend most of my time on the platform doing. <laughs> um, but my favorite food slash cooking channel is Bon Appetit, and they have they have a lot of people in front of the camera, uh, but they have a fair amount of recurring series. And my favorite is called it's alive with Brad. Um, so is this, this guy from New Jersey named Brad Leone, who is incredibly scatterbrained completely all over the place. Sometimes he just cooks random shit, but like theoretically it's a show about fer fermenting stuff. Um, so if you're at all into fermented foods or beverages, it's worth checking out for that purpose. And also, Brad is just one of the more objectively entertaining humans on this planet. Uh, so all of Bon Appetit stuff is super cool. And of their content, I would strongly recommend It's Alive with Brad. And then the podcast that I've recently gotten really, really into is called You're Wrong About. And so basically how that show works is there are two hosts, and every week, one of the hosts will do a super, super deep dive into generally a historical event or a historical trend, while the other host doesn't, and so they're kind of playing the stand-in role of the audience. And it's things that... It's things where the, the popular... Uh, the popular narrative around a particular event is either wrong or incomplete, Hence the title of show being you're wrong about. Um, so one person does a super, super deep dive into a topic. The other person goes in super uninformed and the person who's informed asks the person who's uninformed, what do you know about X, Y, Z? 
and the person throws out, you know, what everyone would think about that topic. And then it's like, haha, all of that's wrong. And here's a shit ton of information. Um, it's very engaging, very informative. The two episodes of that podcast that I think I've enjoyed the most so far is they had one on white collar crime. I think it may have been framed in the context of the 2008 financial crisis, but it was about white collar crime generally and why it doesn't get prosecuted nearly as much as it used to. Uh, And then they also had one on the Challenger explosion, which was also uh, very, very interesting. Um, So yeah, there's, there's a lot of places I go for educational content. um, And a lot of them kind of lean towards the drier side, but in terms of stuff that's just objectively fun and, and accessible, Veritasium, super cool. Number file, especially stuff with James Grime. Bon Appetit, especially the series It's Alive with Brad. And the podcast You're Wrong About, I would strongly recommend all of them. How about you, Trex? Well, well, that's certainly one direction you could go, which is to find your information from all these individual sources. And while that's rewarding, I much prefer to have one particular individual kind of aggregate all of human knowledge, condense it down, and then just kind of tell me the highlights, tell me the really critical stuff that I need to know. And we've talked about this before. Our microphones we speak into are silver. Silver, you'd think typically second place, you know, Uh, and that's absolutely appropriate because there's only one man aggregating all of human knowledge and repeating exactly what you need to hear. He is the one man speaking through the golden microphone, and that is the Rush Limbaugh. So another one to check out. And if you do happen to check him out, you'll be among, what was it? I think in the 90s, he was reaching one of every five U.S. adults through the radio waves. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, his uh, his weekly unique listenership was like 30 million people per week. <laughs> Not bad. And we're getting closer every single episode. We get closer and closer. All right, so that should be enough education to keep you busy for the next two weeks, and then we will be back with another episode. As always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks. Thanks for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. Now, Greg and I are not experts in medicine or health or really anything else for that matter. So before you make any changes to your diet and exercise habits, make sure you check with a doctor or another healthcare professional. If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to support it, Visit StrongerByScience.com to check out the products and services that we offer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.